Father in heaven, we come before you as a group of people, but you know each one of our individual hearts, Lord. There's so much hurt packed into this room, and each one of us has our own story, Lord. I don't know the stories, but you do, and I pray that you will help each one of us to see how your word applies to the things that have gone on in our lives, the things that hold us back, the chains that bind us from being able to truly experience your love. We pray that you will open our minds and our hearts that we may be able to understand your love in a deeper and more powerful way than ever before. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. I am... I'm talking in this seminar. This is I Love Me, I Love Me Not, part three. But I'm starting the topic of healing the hurting heart. How many of you were here for one or both of the seminars this morning? Okay, so some of you have got a fair idea of what I'm talking about here. In a nutshell, what I talked about this morning is that the world tells you you've got to be beautiful or perfect or good at something or loved by somebody in order to be worthwhile and valuable and loved. And the Bible tells us that God loves us immeasurably. So we have to figure out how to internalize that love of God. But the reality is most of us have things that hold us back from really being able to understand God's love. We know he loves us, yeah, 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 God loves me. But what does that really do to when I'm hurting, to the things that I'm naturally drawn to that I feel I can't live without? And how does God solve those problems? I'm going to tell you about a young man who came to me not long ago. Um, he looked so together. Great looking, had a beautiful girlfriend, everything looked great. But his life behind the scenes was falling apart. His father had died when he was a, a boy. And his mother had taken out a lot of her frustrations on him. She chose him out of his siblings and actually would just be mean to him. She would physically be violent toward him, express her anger toward him, neglect him, abuse him. And now, as an adult, he found himself still battling with the same feelings that he felt as a little boy. The same overwhelming emotions, the things that kept him back from being happy as a little boy were now still with him. No, he wasn't under his mother's control anymore, but practically, those chains were still binding him. They were still holding him back from freedom in Christ. He went to church every week. He was trying to do all the right things. What was wrong? And he came to me just saying, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to build a relationship with God. What's going on in my life? What, how, can, how can God get through to me? I'm doing everything I know, and it's not working. So I started talking with him about what were the root issues going on in his life. What did he turn to to make him feel good when he didn't feel good anymore? And it was hard for him to figure it out. You know, very often when we're going to the, the broken cisterns of the world, we keep wondering, what is it that's holding me back? Why, why am I not feeling happy and successful and fulfilled? But it's because we aren't truly experiencing the love of God in a way that impacts on the deep places of our hearts. And that's what was happening for him. And you know, we actually are a country that's full of this problem. You know, in our country, you would think, you know, looking from other countries' perspectives, it's like, wow, if you live in America, you have clean water. It just, you turn on the faucet and there it is. You can take a hot bath. You've got hot and cold water. Wow, you know, you can just change your thermostat. 
You can go get any kind of entertainment you want, just run down to the DVD store, buy something at the music store, whatever you want. We've got clothes, comfort, entertainment, food, everything we need, and yet we're such a miserable country. Major depression is the leading cause of disability in the United States, the main thing. Antidepressants are the most prescribed drugs in the United States. We are a profoundly unhappy country because many people, just like this little boy, have never figured out what it is that's going on in my heart that holds me back from being able to experience the love of God like I should. And of course, there are many people who don't even try, they don't go to church, they're not into God, all of that. But I don't think that those of us in this audience are, for the most part, from that group. We're trying to know God. We want to know God. Why isn't it getting through? What is it that hurts hearts? I would say there are three categories of things that hurt us. The number one is sins that are committed against us. The second one would be sins that we commit ourselves. And the third is the simple results of living in a sinful world. You know, there are just things that happen, diseases, death, things that none of us can control that just seem to happen, natural disasters. These cause so much pain, but there's very little control that we have over them. I'm going to talk in this seminar primarily about sins that are committed against us and how do we heal from those. In the next session, I'm going to be talking about how to deal with the sins that we have committed, how to heal from those mistakes and find hope and comfort to deal with those, those pains, those heart aches that come to us. And the results of living in a sinful world, the same principles apply to dealing with those. I think as you work through the issues in these two categories, it helps you to deal with the other things that happen. The, the things that we face, you know, in this world, we just can't control what happens to us. We like to think we can, we try to, but it's just a reality of life. God does not purpose to take us away from all suffering in this world. Instead, he wants to use it to refine us, to transform us into his image, because that's the whole purpose of life on this earth, being recreated in the image of God so that he can take us to claim us as his own. Pain is not the enemy. <clears throat> I want to make that clear. What is the enemy, according to the Bible? Sin is the enemy. Sin is the thing that we need to fight against. Very often, especially in our culture, we think pain is the enemy. If somebody's got a headache, what do they do? Take a Tylenol, right? You, you try to find something that'll take away the pain. In other cultures, like in India, where they figure, you know, if you are in pain or you're maimed or something's wrong with you, well, it's because you were bad in your last life. People have a more fatalistic approach to pain. Well, it's just the way things are. Can't do anything about it. I don't have a house and I can't do anything but live on the sidewalk, so that's what I'll do. You know, and there's not a whole lot that they can do many times about their lives. They were born as an untouchable, yeah, the caste system may be done away with, but it's still alive and well. They can't do anything about it. And so they don't have an illusion of being in control of their lives. We think somehow we can make it happen if we just try hard enough, right? And we ignore the fact that sometimes God says, wait, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes it just may happen, and we can't do a lot about it. But when we see pain as the enemy, then naturally we see anesthetic as the solution. And many people, you know, as, as amazing as it is to me, I'm, I'm always seeing, you know, people come to me and they say, well, you know, what I really want is I just want to be out of pain. I'm like, well, 
you could go crack open a few beers and see what that does. But if you want to get out of pain, if that's your goal, if you just want to get out of pain, the Bible isn't going to help you with that. The Bible is going to help you to deal with sin. And as you deal with sin and allow God to do the deep work that he needs to do in your life, yeah, it may be painful, but it will bring you healing. Now, I can't promise you that all the pain will go away, but I've certainly seen in my own life where I battled with depression on a daily, constant basis before, it's not there anymore. That doesn't mean all depression is a result of, you know, you're a sinner and if you just trusted God more. I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression about that. Depression can come from a lot of different sources. But I find most of the people who come to me and talk about their depression are harboring sin issues. They're dealing with things that they, they know they really shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, it's an anesthetic. It helps them deal with the pain. And then when they're, they're suppressing that pain, but it's still there, not only does the pain keep getting worse and worse until eventually the Tylenol doesn't work anymore, they need something stronger, something more intense, but the problem is growing bigger and bigger in their minds. You know, in the world you hear about denial. Denial is just a, a modern word for lying to yourself. And the Bible talks about lying to ourselves. It says that people lie to themselves. And it shows that, I mean, goodness, didn't the Pharisees lie to themselves? They knew Jesus was the Son of God, and yet they refused to believe it. We can lie to ourselves. The Bible talks about how people lie to themselves, and as much as we'd like to think, no, I don't have a problem with that. Well, if you're lying to yourself and saying, no, no, I'm really fine. That just happened in the past. It's all over. I'm just going to sing a happy song and, you know, praise the Lord. I'm going to go on. Well, no, sometimes there are pains that we need to process. Because God has created us with a desire to love and be loved. There's nothing evil about that. We're created as thirsty beings. When God made us, he made us for communion with him. When Adam and Eve made a rebellious choice, they fell and God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's a promise. That means that any time that we're turning to sin instead of to Christ to satisfy the longings of our hearts, we'll feel restless. We'll feel thirsty. We'll still have that ache in our, in our hearts, that void that tells us there's something missing. And we might feel okay when we're at the party. We might feel okay when we're doing whatever it is that makes us feel good for a little while. But when we lie down at night and we're staring at the ceiling, it comes back. We say, what is it? What am I looking for? What's hurting me? Because God knows that there are sin issues that need to be dealt with. You know, the, the physical world illustrates the spiritual world. If somebody comes to me and gashes me with a sword, it's going to hurt, right? I'm going to bleed. I'm going to be in pain. And many of us have gone through that in our childhood. Someone hurt us, maybe on purpose, maybe accidentally, but it hurt. But when I respond in a sinful way by trying to protect myself, by trying to live in fear, well, I'm going to make sure that nobody ever hurts me again. Anytime anyone comes close to me, I'm going to watch out. You know, that's still a sin. Fear is a sin. It's not a sin in that you say, well, if you die and you're living in fear, well, you're not going to be able to go to heaven. There are sins that the Bible says separate us from the peace that God wants us to have. Sins that are not unto death, but that still cause us tremendous suffering. And God wants to deal with those things. This morning we talked about the sin of self-reliance, which lies at the heart of so much of our control issues. We want to rely on ourselves, and that's what leads to fear. It's trying to take care of myself so nobody will hurt me. Because nobody took care of me and I got hurt, now I'm going to take care of myself so nobody can hurt me. That's self-protectiveness. 
Is that the way that God calls us to live? Is that the way that Jesus lived? Jesus gave himself. He loved, knowing it was going to hurt. Pain is not the enemy. That's the summary. Pain is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. And when you have pain, you can look back and see, where does that pain come from? Is it a sin someone has committed against me? Maybe I need to forgive. Maybe I need to come to grips with that pain. Is it a sin that I'm committing in response? You know, when a little kid has been beaten all their lives and then someone, you know, holds their arm up like this toward them and they shrink away, that's, that's an evidence of them trying to, to protect themselves. It's not evil of them to do that. But when you're an adult and you're still living that way, constantly pulling back, it's going to damage your relationships with people. It's going to interfere with your ability to minister and to live in open and joyful communion with other fellow believers. That's not the way that God wants us to live. He calls us higher. He wants to set us free. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we let God set us free? Pain may be inevitable, but sin is not inevitable. Um, the sponge is a good illustration, I think, for this. I talked about this a little bit this morning. When you have a sponge in your hand and it's stone dry and you immerse it in a sink full of water, what happens to the sponge? You pull it back out, it's sopping wet. And we, as human beings, are thirsty. We're like sponges. But the problem is, often we, we feel that thirst, that need for love. There's nothing wrong with being thirsty. God created us as thirsty beings. The Bible refers to our hearts as thirsty. But when you sink that sponge into the love of God and it comes up dry again, there's something wrong, isn't there? The problem is, our sponges have been put inside a Ziploc bag, sealed off, we say, okay, I'm going to go spend an hour with God this morning. That'll fix it. And we immerse that Ziploc bag in the water. An hour later, we bring it out. It's still dry. What's wrong? I spent time with God. Maybe I just need more time with God. So the next day, we spend two hours with God. We're still dry. Why is that? All right, I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible every day. I'm going to go out and do service. I'm going to preach. I'm going to make a difference. Maybe I can go do an evangelistic series somewhere. That'll fix it. I'll spend more time in prayer. I'll start a ministry. Whatever it is, but our hearts are still thirsty because there's a Ziploc bag around that heart blocking out the love of God to me. What is that Ziploc bag? What does that represent, and what does it do to our hearts? How do we get through that? You know, that Ziploc bag, to me, seems like a sinful attitude or sometimes an inability to understand the love of God. Sometimes it comes about because someone else has misrepresented God to us. The love of God does not satisfy our hearts because we don't know how to internalize it. We don't know how to drink it in. Sins that have been committed against us or sins that we have committed make us go, I know God loves me, but what I really want is something or someone. Something that will satisfy that craving instead of God. You know, it's like the broken cisterns. If you turn in your Bible to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2. This is not a new concept. Thirsty hearts have been around since the beginning of time. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. 
we're told in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in the next seminar, but broken cisterns are the things that we flee to instead of to Christ. And like we talked about this morning, the idols must crumble. God has to make the broken cisterns dry up. The relationships fall apart. The things that we thought would satisfy us end up not working out the way that we thought. Someone else does better than we do. Someone else wins. Someone else accomplishes what we wish we could have accomplished. We compare ourselves to others and we come out dissatisfied. Man, I did it, but it wasn't good enough. Maybe if I do more, that'll fix it. It's like we're crawling through this desert and then we find, I know out there is where the satisfaction is. Somewhere off there is the oasis, but right here is a drinking fountain. I can drink out of this drinking fountain. It'll just satisfy me so I can get to God. But then the more that we drink from here, the less we want to go there. The more we feel like, yeah, I can get what I want right here without a relationship with God because I have a relationship with this person or I can get what I want out of succeeding in sports. Whatever it is that we find, those things will never ultimately satisfy because it's a sinful mentality that leads us to flee to them. So sometimes it's a sin that's committed against us or something that someone else has done, their, their way of life that has impacted on us, that hurts us profoundly. I'm speaking about mostly what happens with our families. You know, and I don't want to give you a bad impression of, you know, all parents are responsible for all their children's faults and weaknesses. But the fact is, many parents make mistakes that wound their children permanently or very deeply. And all of us, having come from parents, you know, every one of us has a different story, but none of you have perfect parents and neither do I. And now that I have children, I realize there are no perfect parents, except God, and Adam and Eve still rebelled. There are no perfect parents, and therefore all of us come away wounded in some way. You know, it's interesting that God, in the Garden of Eden, he set up a perfect system. Adam and Eve would have children, and as those babies were born, a little baby, you can't tell a little baby, you know, God is up in heaven. You can't see him, but he loves you. Uh, little babies don't get that. They think, wah, wah, what I want is food. They, they don't understand something conceptual for many years. So they need something tangible, someone who shows them the unconditional love of God. And God set up a system where parents would be the ones who had children. And those children would be raised by perfect parents who would perfectly reflect the unconditional love of God to those children. The parents would grow to understand God's love in a new and deeper way. The children would grow to understand God's love continually. And as the parents raised those children, eventually they'd be able to take the child's hand in this hand, take the hand of God figuratively, and bring the two together. So this child understands, wow, God is the one who's the fountain of all love. You know, my two-year-old can tell you, God loves him, and God is the one who's put so much love in our hearts. And he'll often just bring that up to me in conversation. Mommy, I love you so much. I'm so glad Jesus put so much love in our hearts. <laughs> it's wonderful. It, it, it waters my soul to hear that. But I also realize I'm not a perfect parent, and there are times that I warp my children's image of God. 
their concept of who God is is warped by the fact that I get impatient. I say, would you please move? It takes us an hour and a half to get to a meal at GYC. And I'm starving, and I've got to go to a seminar. You know, children, children build our character. As they say, children keep you young, but first they make you old. <laughs> They're doing that to me. <laughs> so I don't want to be too hard on parents. But the reality is, parents are meant to reflect God's unconditional love to their children. And no parent has done that perfectly in the history of the world. So every one of us grows up with a somewhat warped concept of God. Sometimes those concepts of God are significantly warped by the mistakes that our parents made. We talked this morning about happiness-based living versus holiness-based living. Am I driven primarily by the, the desire to be happy or primarily by the desire to be holy? If my goal is happiness, I'll never achieve it. If my goal is holiness, I may be able to find both happiness and holiness because God has ordained for us to live holy lives with a, a powerful measure of peace and joy within us. That doesn't mean that we'll always be happy. If you're truly a Christian, you'll be all happy, happy, joy, joy. No, I don't want to pretend that. Jesus' life wasn't that way. Neither were very many of the apostles' lives or most of the people back in history who gave their lives totally sacrificially for God. So why should we expect our lives to be totally happy? That's the prosperity gospel that's being preached all over the place because nobody wants to hear if you give your life to God, he's going to make you live a life of sacrifice. We all want to hear, give your life to God. He'll make you so happy you won't believe it. I'm afraid that that's not a good goal. If you give your life to God in order to become happy, you're still fundamentally selfish. What's wrong there? But if you give your life to God saying, I owe this to you. You are the God of all creation. You created me in your image. You redeemed me by your blood. I owe everything to you. And all I want to do is pour out my heart in grateful adoration. There's a tremendous satisfaction that comes from that. Your life may be difficult, but it will be so immeasurably worth it. It will be so immeasurably fulfilling, satisfying to just pour yourself out like a drink offering before the Lord and see the wonderful things that he does. You know, when I gave my life to Christ, I felt like I was stepping off this cliff into blackness, and there was nothing down there that I could see. And I just heard this voice. It was as if, you know, I hear this voice saying, don't worry, I'll catch you. And I was like, right. <laughs> the only reason I was stepping off that cliff into full surrender to Christ was because there was no other way out. I couldn't live that way anymore. I was depressed, I was suicidal, and I thought, hey, I gotta try the God thing before I kill myself, because what if it works? So I did, I gave myself to Christ, and I thought, well, this probably means I'm never gonna get married, and I'm never gonna have children, not that I really wanted children that much, but I certainly didn't, didn't think it would be so great to never get married, I'm gonna spend my whole life in sacrifice, and no fun, here goes dancing and parties and all the great things, but you know what? I have such a rich, fulfilling life as a Christian. You know, I come to GYC and I see hundreds of friends, people that I love, people who love me. When I gave myself to Christ, I lost my friends, the whole pack of them. I moved to academy, I went to Washita Hills Academy, and I got a couple of letters from a couple of friends. Back then we didn't have cell phones, nobody stayed in touch with anybody, you know, there was no Facebook, there was no internet, hey. You know, we, we didn't stay in touch. My friends fell off the face of the earth, and I saw them once in a while in the next few years. But, you know, they kind of felt I was strange by now. You know, I was the holy roller. And <laughs> I started a new friendship network 
from scratch, I had met two people of my new friendship network, just met them before I moved there and started a new life with Christ. And it was very scary, I won't lie to you, but it was also just the most exhilarating journey of my life, discovering what it meant to be totally surrendered to God. And now I'm married to the man of my dreams. I have three healthy, happy children. I could never have had anything like this if I had kept clinging to myself. Even if I had married a wonderful person, even if I had married the same person, we would not have had a beautiful, wonderful marriage because I would have been in it seeking for myself. I want to be happy. If you will just do this, then I can be happy. Why don't you stop doing that so I can be happy? If our goal is happiness, we will destroy our marriages, we'll destroy our relationships with other people, we'll destroy our relationships with our parents, our siblings, our friends. Everywhere we go, we'll be using people to try to get happy. And they'll be using us to try to get happy too, so it's all okay, right? God has a plan that's so much better. He says, give it all to me. I want to give everything back to you, but to give it to you in new, in ways that you can't even imagine right now. But back to what happens in our families. Growing up, most of us have experienced significant pain from our families of origin. In uh, America, about half of American ch children will witness the breakup of their parents' marriages. And 40% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers. That's a tremendous amount of heartache right there. Effects of divorce, research shows that children of divorce tend to get lower grades. They're three times as likely to need psychological help as teens. They have more psychological problems than children from homes disrupted by the death of a parent. It's better to have your father die than to have him move out. And those of you who've experienced that may agree. Knowing that he couldn't stop himself from being removed from you is very different than knowing he chose to leave you. They're at greater risk for injury, asthma, headaches, speech defects, and numerous other health problems. And if your parents stayed together, that doesn't necessarily mean that because they didn't get divorced, you're so much better off. There's so much abuse, so much neglect, so much suffering in the families where people stay together. I grew up in a home that was torn by conflict all the time. My parents never divorced, and I'm glad for that. It makes things easier now, you know, we don't have to go between different houses and deal with step-parents and all the things that many of my friends have to deal with. But it came at a price, too, of often living in tension and not knowing whether we were going to have, you know, a happy meal that evening or if somebody's going to blow up, it's all going to be miserable. It was, it was a difficult life. And I don't, I don't think that just because your parents stay together means that you're not wounded. 84% of prison inmates were abused as children. One in three girls and one in five boys are sexually abused by an adult at some time during childhood. Those are official statistics. Most of my girlfriends growing up had been sexually abused all the way through my teenage years. If it was that bad then, and now we have the pornography addiction and all of those things going on, I can't imagine things are getting any better. I believe over 50% of girls are sexually abused and probably significantly more than one in five boys. Boys don't tend to say, yeah, I was sexually abused. No, no, I was never sexually abused. Well, did anybody ever touch you in a way that you felt was inappropriate sexually? Or did they ever watch you, look at you? Well, yeah, yeah, but I was never sexually abused. Those things can be very damaging. And we often just say, no, no, I'm fine. Denial, remember, is still lying to yourself. Sometimes we have to examine those things and say, 
is there something that's still wounding me from the things that have happened to me? More than 80% of abusers are parents or someone close to a child. You know, we can warn our children about, you know, watch out for the big bad guy on the street corner there, but most of the people who abuse children are close to them. It's more damaging to them that way. The devil loves that. He can warp their image of God so significantly if someone that they think loves them is also abusing them. One in ten babies is born to a mother abusing drugs nowadays. And we can look at that and say, well, that's outside the church. But inside the church, things are so different. But divorce statistics and conflicted homes, sadly, are just about the same inside the church as outside the church because very few parents are totally converted. Very few have really given their lives to Christ and allowed him to mature them into who they need to be. And unfortunately, it's not getting any better. Most, most people get married because they think it'll make them happier. And therefore, when their marriage isn't making them happier, they try to make the other person make them happier. That kind of conflict in the home, that kind of atmosphere, doesn't help children to grow up feeling loved and accepted. So their image of God tends to be warped and they tend to go out into the world and look for a spouse who will satisfy their needs too because nobody ever satisfied their needs growing up. Their parents were not loving them and their parents were demanding, why don't you get good, better grades? Why don't you do what I want you to do? If you would just do this, then I would be happy. So we're creating cycles everywhere of damage. And, and parents are by no means the only ones that damage us. Neglect, bullying, name-calling, ridicule, extramarital sex, exposure to porn, violence, other addictive behaviors, things like that cause immeasurable damage to people, even if their parents seem to be loving. You know, I went to summer camp once when I was, I guess, 12 or 13. I spent a week at summer camp, and there was a boy there named Jason. I should tell you his last name, <laughs> but of course I've forgiven him. <laughs> Jason decided to just start picking on me. And he persuaded his whole cabin of little boys to pick on me. And all week long, they tormented me. They tried to drag me up in front for the talent show so they could do something embarrassing to me. They made fun of me in the cafeteria. Everywhere I went, they were just demanding, assaulting me, calling me pig eyes and things like that. You know, for years and years afterward, I was so sensitive about my eyes because I thought, I just have these little bitty pig eyes. You know, bullying can be severely damaging to someone. And you can say, well, bullies just, you know, well, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That doesn't help it at all. When a child is going through bullying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart. So all of us have gone through some kind of damage. Even though many people, when they come and talk to me and I say, so tell me about what, what went on in your life as a child. Well, you know, I actually had a great childhood. No, I don't really have any baggage from back then. Well, yeah, my dad used to kick me around now and then, but, you know, that's the way it is, right? You know, <laughs> we go through these things, but in order to survive, we develop coping mechanisms. I'm all right. I'm tough. I didn't need them anyway. I don't need anybody. I've been able to take care of myself from a young age. I raised myself. I had my friends, and that was all I needed. Whatever it is that we've done to tell ourselves, I don't really need my parents, often that spills over into a mentality of, I don't really need God either. I can take care of myself. Yeah, of course, if I, you know, if I can't take care of something, I'll talk to God. But often we have these trigger points that, that we blow up too easily over something. You know, I've had people... 
sort of, you know, they'll, they'll talk to me about, yeah, my, you know, my boyfriend and I get along really well, but then, you know, if he, if he just says this one thing, I can't stand it if he calls me that. I can't stand it if he says anything about my weight. Well, why is that such a big issue? When you go back, oh, well, it's actually about how my mom and my dad always called me fatso. Or they said, boy, isn't she getting a little chunky? We need to lay off on the peanut butter, don't we? You know, little things that parents might not even consider significant, and yet they have huge impact on their child. And then when they come down 10 years later and somebody says something small that's a trigger, boom, there's a reaction that's not proportionate to the situation. That's because it's like a minefield. You've got this minefield, it's all nice and green grass, everything looks beautiful. You're walking across having this beautiful walk and all of a sudden, boom, and you go, whoa, what was that? A reaction that's totally not proportionate to the situation tells you there's something going on behind the scenes and you need to get to the root of it because there's something that's under the surface, a sin reaction that's hurting you. You see, resentment is what holds us like that. Many of us are like puppets. We, you know, we're the puppet. It's one of those old-fashioned puppets, you know, that has like a cross up here, and, you know, you, you can move the puppet by moving the cross back and forth. And they walk, and they pick up their arms and things like that. Well, our parents are like the cross at the top, and we are like the puppet, but there are these strings in between. Our parents may not be doing anything to us anymore. We're not even in contact with them, but somebody else who's in close contact with us brushes against one of those strings, and, whoa, we jump. What was that about? When something like that happens to you, realize there's something going on behind the scenes. There's a resentment. There's a sin issue in my heart that's connecting me to my parents. You know, when you're a little kid and your parents do things to you and you react in a certain way, you know, to a certain degree, that's your parents' responsibility. But when you're not a kid anymore, you're responsible for your own life. When I tell my children, you know, if I tell my six-year-old, be careful, don't touch anything, you know, in the, this dishes in a, you know, at a china shop. If she reaches out and breaks something, who pays for it? Me. If she's 15 and she reaches out and breaks something, if it's really expensive, we may share the, the cost of it or something like that. When she's 25, she's on her own. She's going to pay for it herself, right? This is how it works. As we get older and older, we sometimes are still controlled by those chains that bind. The strings are still there because we haven't severed our sinful responses to the sins against us. When someone sins against me, it may be like a sword slash wounding my arm, but sin is not the pain. Sin is my infection response. You know, when, if somebody crams a bunch of dirt into that wound and then it heals over superficially on the outside, but there's an infection raging down inside, is it going to hurt? Sure, it's going to hurt. I'm going to try to protect it. Somebody comes over and looks like they're going to slap my arm. Oh, no, no, don't touch that. That hurts. So you can imagine when Christ comes close with his scalpel of truth, says, here, let me cut that open for you. Do we go, oh, yeah, that sounds wonderful. No, we do everything within our power to say, not that. Uh-uh, don't go anywhere close to what hurts me. I don't want you to cut me. But he wounds to heal. When Christ comes to us and says, let me look at what's going on under the surface there. Why do you overreact? Why do you feel this way when someone says that thing to you? When somebody says pig eyes to you, what makes you feel that recoil in you? 
Is it because you haven't yet forgiven that person? Is it because you've committed yourself to self-protection? I'm not going to let anybody ever hurt me again the way that so-and-so hurt me. That's not a biblical way to live. You cheat yourself out of such rich, fulfilling relationships when you're always committed to self-protection. I see people who've been married for 30, 40 years sometimes say, have you ever thought of talking to your spouse about how you feel on this issue? No. Are you kidding? We don't talk about stuff like that. Have you ever thought of praying about it with him? Uh, no, we, uh, we, don't, we don't do that in our family. Why not? Because we don't. Okay. Would it be better to be able to hypothetically talk about those things? Well, yeah, if I could be in a different life, in a different family, in a different relationship, sure. Well, <laughs> if you want to live that way, what holds you back? It's the chains that bind, those puppet strings. We're unwilling to let go of our sinful way of relating to people, and so when someone reminds us of that relationship in the past, we jump. We relate sinfully again. We, we react in anger or in withdrawal. Don't mess with me. Don't talk about it. I'm not going to go there. The things that other people have done to hurt us may hurt for a while. That sword wound is going to hurt. But God's way of healing is that we keep that wound open. We let his love penetrate and be the, the antibiotic, you know, that keeps, keeps all the infection out. And then it heals from the inside out, right? Rather than having a superficial healing, it's okay. I don't need anybody. I can take care of it myself. That superficial healing that leaves the infection down inside is damaging. It does much more harm than good. The devil wants us to stuff sin back down inside. But sin that's stuffed down inside instead of dealt with and allowed to come out comes out in other ugly ways. This infection, I may suppress it so it goes away. My arm doesn't hurt anymore, but it's going to come up on my back. It's going to come up on my leg. It's going to come up somewhere else. I may say, no, my dad just, you know, he abandoned me, but that's okay. I've dealt with it. I moved on. doesn't matter anymore. That's in the past. I've forgiven and forgotten. La-di-da. But then it comes up in my compulsive need for male attention comes up in my need for male intimacy. If I've been abused, and maybe I you know, will react in the opposite way by saying, well, anytime anyone wants me sexually, I'll be incapable of saying no. That isn't the way that God ordained it to be. But when we press that sin back inside of our hearts, instead of dealing with it and letting God clean it out and heal it from the inside out, it comes back in ugly ways. It always does. Sin that's pushed back down within our hearts is always still there. Anger, you know, the Bible says, let not the sun go down on your wrath. That's not a literal okay. It's three minutes before sundown. Let me talk about that afterwards so I've got 24 hours to repent, right? <laughs> it's resentment that's a sin. Anger is not a sin. Being able to be angry, you know, if somebody beat up my child, I would be angry. That's not a sin. If you hear about a child being abused, you get angry. That's not a sin. But I talk to some people and I say, you know, so tell me what happened in your life. They tell me this horrible story of abuse. I say, does that make you angry? No, I've forgiven and forgotten it all. Okay, so hypothetically, if you heard of that happening to somebody else's kid, would that make you angry? Oh, yeah, I'd be enraged. Boy, I wouldn't be able to hold myself back from getting my hands on that person. Are they angry? They're still angry, but they're repressing it. They're lying to themselves because the thought of having to deal with that much pain it's too much. Nope, nope, nope. Let's just heal it over superficially. Slap on a Band-Aid. Take some anesthetic. 
and go find something else too. You know, go watch a movie, then I'll feel better, right? Go find something to eat, then I'll feel better. God wants us to sometimes confront the pain of our lives, not because he enjoys pain any more than we do, but because he wants us to experience his love in new and deeper ways. If you break your leg, and I walk over to your house and I say, here, be healed, and I touch your leg, whew, and you're healed, how wonderful, that's great. But how about if I come and take care of you for a year and nurse you back to health, teach you to walk again? Won't that be more of a relationship? You know, the stories are told about shepherds who used to break the leg of an unruly lamb so that they could carry that lamb around for weeks while the, the leg healed. Where the lamb would run away all the time before, the lamb was constantly in danger of being killed by a wolf. After that lamb had been carried by the shepherd for several weeks, when it could finally start walking again, do you think it would run away? No, it would stay with the shepherd. Sometimes Christ allows us to be wounded in order that he may heal us. It's not his idea that people sin against us. Some people say, well, you know, I've just accepted it because this is obviously the way that God wanted it to be in my life. Well, did God ordain that Joseph's brother sell him as a slave? Sin against him? Did God ordain that Potiphar's wife try to seduce him and then lie about him? No, but we worship a God who is so far above the petty little circumstances of this life that he can transform anything into a tool to be used by him. Yes? I had a question. Um, you talked about um, not covering up the wounds, I will. That's where we're going now. <laughs> Very good question. How do you let the wound heal? Can you the yes, the, the question was how, when we say this hypothetical, you know, you don't want to cover over the wound, you want to let it heal, how do you actually do that? I'm going to talk about that. You see, often we feel we've got to do everything within our power to protect ourselves, and we hope we can get rid of the infection somehow on our own. But Christ wants to use the sharp two-edged sword to cut through those protective layers and to show us where the sin is. Then when we repent of the sin, we say, Lord, I realize now I was resenting. I had pride. I had this rage within me that I wasn't willing to give to you. Then it takes time. Healing takes time, right? Physical healing takes time. No matter how spiritual you are, your broken arm does not heal in a day, right? Emotional healing takes time, too. But God wants to teach us to heal by being the wounded healer himself. So sin is the enemy, not pain. When relief of the inevitable pain of living in a fallen world becomes our priority, at that moment, we leave the path toward pursuing God. That's from the book Inside Out, page 79. Great book, by the way. When pain relief is our goal, we become committed to self-protection. When becoming like Christ is our goal, we open ourselves up to be wounded if necessary in order to become like Christ. Sometimes that means confronting, why do I overreact to this situation? Sometimes it means sitting down and saying, what is it about my relationship with my parents that makes me incapable of loving them or of listening to them or of responding well to their counsel? What are these things that hold me back? And it takes some time and some introspection, some seeking the word of God. The choice before us is rather stark. Either live to be comfortable or live to know God. We can't have it both ways. One choice excludes the other. That's inside out, page 99. You know, I put this pre presentation together, 
And then we ordered this book inside out. I was like, wow, look at that. There are so many things in here that parallel exactly what I'm talking about here. This book is about being able to confront your brokenness. And while Larry Crabb is a, not a Seventh-day Adventist, you know, I don't know what his philosophy is on everything, but I found his book to be very biblical. And the things that he's written have been a blessing to me. When God took Adam and Eve out of Eden, he did it out of love. When God allows us to suffer as the results of sin, either someone else's sin or our own, he allows us to suffer knowing that those wounds can draw us closer to him. They can become some of the most effective tools in the world to bring us to Christ. Those who have lived homeless out in the darkness and the cold, being a victim of the elements, may appreciate having a warm, soft, comfortable bed in a nice, warm house, much more than those who have had a nice, warm house and a nice, soft, comfortable bed all of their lives, right? They both are sleeping in the same kind of bed in the same kind of house, but those who know what it's like to be without it are always amazed at, wow, I can't believe that God has given me something so wonderful. We tend to be ungrateful sometimes when we've had these blessings for a long time. But when God allows us to be wounded and then he heals us, wow, the relationship that he wants to build with us is just amazing. And we're overwhelmed by his love. We've heard of some of the results of being hurt. There's fear or anxiety, loneliness, anger, some depression, not all depression results from that. Most depression, I find, is at least pushed along and stimulated more, even if it was a physical origin, by having a wrong mentality. Fine, I'm just going to let it all happen. I can't do anything anyway. No one loves me anyway. We feed those negative thoughts that are lies, lies straight from the devil. And those things push us farther and farther. The need to control addictive relationships, often they're, they're rooted. We can say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I messed up again. But the addictive relationship comes from trying to find in this person what only God can give to me. Compulsive behaviors, things like cutting. You know, I'm sure some of you know people who cut. Maybe some of you have that problem. You know, cutting yourself so that you can feel something. It's a natural result, often, of going into denial. You see, when you cut yourself off from feeling pain, you say, nope, I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to feel this pain anymore. You also cut yourself off from loving. And that's an empty, shallow experience. When you can't feel love and you can't feel pain, you start just becoming emotionally numb, it makes sense. I want to feel something. And people will cut themselves in order to feel something. They want to feel some pain. They've mentally and emotionally shut themselves off so completely that they're incapable of feeling emotional pain. Therefore, they try to feel physical pain as a result. That's one, one way to become a cutter. Other people go to eating disorders or something like that because of their need to control. Different, different roots. I mean, there, are, there are a few roots that can lead to a lot of different fruits. And fruit sins are the things that we tend to realize. Ooh, that was a sin. I shouldn't have messed around with that girl. I shouldn't have read that book. I shouldn't have watched that movie. But the fruit sins are often what we repent of and we forget about the root sins. We don't deal with the root sins because that's too painful. Ooh, I don't want to have to deal with that part of me. That's ugly. Many people come to me, you know, they say, oh, I've gone to counseling, and you know, I'm, I'm not a certified counselor. I'm almost done with my master's degree in biblical counseling, but they'll come to me and say, I've gone to counseling, and it just never helps. 
you know, they just sit there and listen to me, but, you know, it hasn't really solved the problems. Often psychotherapy and even Christian counseling focuses on you just got to listen to the person, let them find the answers within themselves. That's a humanistic philosophy, you know, that you actually have the answers within yourself. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful. They're wicked. We can't plumb to the depths of our hearts. We, in ourselves, do not have the answers. What are you going to do when somebody comes to you as a counselor and they say, well, I'm having an affair. Oh, really? What do you think is the solution? Well, I think I need to leave my wife and run off with my girlfriend. Really? Okay, well, so that's the solution you found within yourself? Maybe you need to dig a little deeper. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? You know, I, the solution to my problem is an abortion. The solution is my, to my problem is acting out sexually. Well, no. We can compare our lives to the Word of God. And as Christians and as counselors, and I believe every Christian should be a counselor, helping one another to understand. A counselor's biblical responsibility is just to help other people understand how the Word of God applies to what's going on in their lives. That's what my goal is as a counselor. And when people come to me and they say, well, this is what's going on in my life. I say, well, have you thought about this sinful behavior, this root? Ooh, don't want to deal with the root. I'm doing okay, you know, we can fix things. I know our relationship has gone a little off track, but we'll, we'll get back on track. We'll, the Lord will be able to work through this, I know. Well, have you thought about maybe giving up your relationship in order to focus on God? Oh, no, we couldn't do that. You know, I had someone come to me a few months ago who did have the courage to break off a relationship because she realized, praise the Lord, that she and her boyfriend were driving each other farther from God, so they made the mutual decision to break up while they still were very crazy about each other in order to focus on their walk with God with no hope of, you know, we'll get back together as soon as we get things right with God, maybe a few weeks, you know. It wasn't like that. They gave up and they went through this agonizing process of surrendering themselves to God. You know, that was a beautiful thing to watch. She said, shed an awful lot of tears on our couch, but that's okay. Pain is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. And I've watched her growing in a beautiful way as she gives herself to Christ in a whole new way. She's finding in God the answers that she could never have found if she'd stayed together with her boyfriend. Sometimes the most painful way on the outside is by any means not the most painful way when you see it from God's eyes. So many people I see, they got married because they couldn't bear to break up. And they reward themselves with a hundredfold the pain that they would have had if they had just given themselves, themselves to God and faced that pain of going through a breakup at that time. Later on, they've got children who are paying the price. They're suffering day to day, wishing, if only. You know, I had a woman tell me not long ago, I made that decision and I'm going to have to bear the consequences for the rest of my life. She's been married for 40 years. It's a terrible feeling. I would appeal to you if you are in a relationship that you know the Lord is leading you to get out of it, but you don't have the courage, give yourself to God in a deeper way. Ask him, what is it? What's the root? Where is the idolatry in my heart? Why do I feel that this relationship is more important to me than you? Where is self on the throne of my heart? Because it's always either Christ or self, right? If my life is devoted to holiness, or my life is devoted to happiness, the fruits will be shown in the way that I relate to life, to living, to the relationships that I have. Is your God concept a Ziploc bag? Is it something that holds you back from being able 
to understand God's love. You see, when God ordained that parents reflect his unconditional love to their children, and parents misrepresent God, they warp children's sense of worth and lovability. When their child no longer feels, I am of infinite value. Why? Based on the fact that God created me in his image and redeemed me through his blood. What more evidence could there be that I am loved? When children don't have that concept, when parents have misrepresented that, and all parents do, myself included, all parents misrepresent God to their children in some ways then children need to be enabled to go to the Word of God and find what God is really like there. When we don't do that, we risk continuing hardening ourselves in that attitude of relationship toward God. This makes children perceive God as unloving in some way, that God is not one who loves them just the way they are and yet has an infinite plan of how much more they can grow into his image. They think, well, God will love me if I just do everything he wants me to do. So I'm going to try really hard. But when you're trying to do something in order to be loved, you'll never fully believe in that love. You know, if I clean the house in order for my husband to love me, I bake the, the best bread I can, I clean everything, I try to get the children looking as good as possible, and he comes home and says, wow, you've done so well. Great, he finally loves me. Am I going to be secure in that love? No, no. What about when my brokenness is revealed? When my husband comes home unexpectedly from work, the house is a disaster. There's nothing good in the refrigerator. The children are a mess, and I'm a mess. I'm sobbing on the couch. I've got an oily face and oily hair. And he says, honey, I love you so much. Now that's love. And that might actually make me feel a little more loved, right? You see, sometimes God has to reveal to us just how unlovely we are. Show us the sinfulness, the wickedness within our hearts so that we're both at the same time humbled and hopeful. He says, man, there is some work to be done in your life, but I love you so much just the way you are because I see who you are in my eyes, who you can be, who I've created you to be, and I've paid the price already to set you free from all the chains that bind you. When we perceive God as unloving in some way, that reinforces Satan's lie to us, right? I've got I've to become who I need to be, and I can get higher and higher without God, right? You shall not surely die. Eve fell for this, right? The classic lie. You don't really need God. In fact, you can take care of yourself pretty well. And we fall for that over and over. If we feel, well, you know, I can actually do this. I'm going to get that house clean. I'm going to accomplish whatever it is. I'm going to get straight A's. Whatever it is that we try to base our lovability or our worth on, it's always going to fade into insignificance. It'll never be enough because God has put into us a love cup. Now, our parents are supposed to fill that love cup, right? They're supposed to give us love. The parents are supposed to take their child's hand as their child is born, take God's hand, and bring the two together. As they raise this child, they continually teach the child, you see the love that I give you? It's not from me, it's from God. He's put this love into my heart. He loves you with this everlasting love. And in every way, you are loved. Not because you've done everything right, but because 
You are created in the image of God, and he has an infinite plan of how he can redeem you and transform you into his image. As God gives that message to children, their love cup is filled. But practically, parents, as we've already talked about, fail to fill their children's love cups. And so every child has some, some holes in their love cup. Now, the Bible says that God wants to heal us. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Doesn't that, by the way, imply a process? Binding up wounds? Binding up takes time, right? It's not just a zap. You think of Jesus healing people, it was usually the, wow, boom, he, he heals them and immediately the blind can see, right? But in the Old Testament, you find healing was often a process. And that's typically what healing is in any of our lives. Isn't it a miracle when your broken leg knits itself back together? That's a miracle, but it's a process. It's a miraculous process in which your body does what God has created it to do. In your heart, God has created your mind and your body to heal in the same way, by surrendering to him, by allowing him to do what he wants to do, and by not resisting and allowing sin to come in as an infection to destroy. So when God wants to fill our love cups, often the mistakes that our parents have made are kind of like plastic wrap over the top. God tries to pour in his love into our love cup, but it just splashes off. He says, wait, wait, I want to fill you. What can we do to get through that plastic wrap? Here are some misrepresentations of the character God. If you will just do everything right, I will love you. I'm punishing you because I'm mad at you and I feel like it. Haven't you ever been punished that way? Some parents are overindulgent or they're overly absorbed with their children's accomplishments. Wow, you're the most amazing child in the world. And they warp that child's conception of the fact that they are only worth something based on God's love for them, not because they do things so well. Rejection, abuse, control, there are so many ways that parents can misrepresent the love of God to their children. But the fact is, we are a nation of brokenness and a, a world of brokenness. If emotional brokenness makes hearts impervious to the gospel, we are facing a crisis in this country and all over the world of monumental proportions, both personally and evangelistically. How can you help a person understand the love of God? You sit down with them and you say, well, here's the Sabbath, here's the 27, 28 fundamental beliefs, and they go, wow, that's wonderful, but I'm broken and I don't feel God's love for me. Now what? Well, what can God do to get through that? If the gospel really works, it must address the brokenness resulting from other sins against us. But it seems like the Bible doesn't talk about that, right? We have to go to psychology, right? Let me give you one of the many things in the Bible that is a, a, a sort of a, um, I guess you could say, a biblical approach to dealing with some of these, these needs. You know, Jesus in his parables talked so many times about how to find healing, how to let God into the deep parts of our lives. In Mark 4, verses 2 through 20, we don't have time to read through the whole thing. We see that the seed falls on the footpath, right? The sower goes out to sow, and as he sows, some of the seed falls onto a footpath. Now, if you picture a footpath in your mind, that ground, is that hard or soft? It's hard, it's been packed down. What is packed down the ground on a footpath? Feet, right, other people's choices. Packed down the ground, somebody else walks across that ground. It's not your fault if you're a footpath and somebody has packed down the ground of your heart so that you can't seem to allow the word of God to go in. The seed is the word of God, right? And the sower is God. Is there anything wrong with the sower? Is there anything wrong with the seed? 
Now, there's nothing wrong with the word of God, but there's something wrong with the dirt. We are dust, right? God made Adam from dust, and biblically, we are represented by dirt. So when I am dirt, and the footpath has been hardened by someone else's choices, the birds come and take away the seed before it can bear fruit, right? When the birds come and take away the seed, doesn't that represent what happens in many lives? You know, over and over I've seen young people, they come into church, they sit in the back row with their arms folded, they listen to the message, they slouch back out. The word did nothing for them, even though they listened. Other people, they go home and they study their Bible. They spend hours praying, please, God, help me somehow to feel your love. But still, the birds seem to take away the seed. The, the sower has sown the seed of the word of God, and yet it doesn't break through to our hearts. Why is that? What do you need when you can't get through hard ground? You need a shovel. Okay, you need something sharp. And is it enough to just stand the shovel on the, the ground? You've got to put some force behind it, don't you? What's the sharpest thing in the world, according to the Bible? The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder to the dividing. It goes right into your heart, your joints. It, it goes deep into who you are. The sword is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The sower is God. And doesn't God send us his word in order to put some force behind it, right? He wants us to meditate on his word, put some force behind it, drive it into the ground of our hearts so that we can truly be made new. There's nothing wrong with this ground. We don't hear that this ground was ground that could not grow anything, only that it's hard. It's been hardened by the choices of someone else. When you struggle to believe in the word of God, you've got you've to put some force behind it. You've got to believe that that sword is going to pierce if you put some force behind it. You know, we live in an instant gratification culture. Everybody wants what they want now. Microwave it. You know, people get upset because their, their wireless connection is taking forever. I've been here for 45 seconds. <laughs> if you approach the word of God that way, it's not going to do what it needs to do for you. It can't. God doesn't want you to come at it saying, okay, God, I want you to make me feel good. Like, in the next 45 seconds would be just about right. Okay. Come on. Fix it up. I'm not feeling good. God wants us to drive the sword into our hearts. We do that by meditation on the word of God, allowing him. And he's the one who gives us power, right? It's not me that says, if I try hard enough to get the word of God into my heart, if I meditate, if I memorize, then I'll be able to reach God. No, this is not about you. You are not strong enough. You cannot make that seed germinate. You can drop seeds into the ground, but you can't make them grow. Only Christ can do that. The Holy Spirit is the one who will come within you and bring life. The water of the Spirit, the word of God, he brings the water that satisfies your heart. Sometimes you need the water. You just need to sit down and meditate on that love that God has for you. Remember, if you can't think of what to study in the Bible, if you can't figure out how to believe in the love of God, those two things that you need to meditate on are creation and redemption. Meditate on that. Go back to Genesis. If you, if you can't think of anything else to do and you don't know where to start, sit down with your Bible and meditate. I don't mean just read. I mean meditate. Think about it. Imagine God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground 
and he breathed into him the breath of life. The moment he did that, Adam went from being a ball of mud to being someone that God would give his life for. We can't understand that kind of love. You know, if I make something out of mud and then it doesn't cooperate, you know, it all falls apart, oh well, throw it away, I'm disappointed, but you know, here's Adam, he rebels, outright rebels against God. And God could just grab him and, you know, crumple up, whoops, let's make something again. He just made this mud a couple days ago, right? Why does he have to give his life for something that he just made a couple days ago? This is just little speck of dust on a little speck of a planet when he rules the whole universe. Are you seeing what I'm talking about? You don't just go and, okay, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2. All right, I'll read it again. I mean, think about it. Think about the love that God has for you because this is the key that will unlock for you the treasures of the gospel. The gospel is God created you in his image. And even though you chose to rebel, you chose to say, I don't want to be in your image. I don't want to be love. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to seek to exalt myself. Isn't that what Eve said? She chose, I think I'm going to believe this serpent who says that I could get higher than God. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And she said, wow, that sounds good to me. I think I'd like to get up there. And God, when he sees that evil in your heart, says, it's okay. I can take care of that. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, when the water of life and the sharp two-edged sword of the Spirit go to work in your heart, it's not going to be something that just happens by a a little slap. You know, when I used to read novels, I could read through a whole novel. You know, it's an inch and a half thick. That's all right. I'll be through it in a couple of days. I can do that. When I started reading the Bible, it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm swimming through mud. How can I do this? It was hard. But instead of trying to get huge chunks in, okay, I'm going to read five chapters every morning, I started trying to meditate on one verse. You know, something like being adopted by Christ is such a profound thought. You could spend hours, days on it, and just start getting to it. We're studying right now the story of Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt with our children. And the kids are going, wow, they were complaining all the time, weren't they? Wow, that's what I want them to learn. <laughs> you see, when, when we demand that the Word of God give us what we want right now, quick fix, make me happy, we're going to come up dry. It's not going to work. But when we say, okay, I'm going to have to put some effort behind this. If you, if you go out to your new garden plot and you say, all right, in 10 minutes I'm going to have a beautiful garden. I can just imagine the flowers are going to be in here blooming, swaying in the breeze. You're going to be dismally disappointed in 10 minutes, aren't you? You've got a lot of hard work behind, you know, that shovel before you get the ground even ready. Then you've got to sow the seed, then you've got to water, then you've got to wait, you've got to be patient. If your goal is happiness, and if you want it quick, you're not going to get that from the Word of God. But if your goal is holiness, if your goal is wholeness for Jesus, then He can really work with you. He can give you what He wants you to be. How do you cultivate the ground? Let me give you some tips on that. Number one, identify the hardened areas in your heart. What are some areas that you want God to work on? Talk with him about those things. Kneel down before him and say, Lord, this is something I realize is wrong. There's some reason that I'm chasing friends away or some reason that I'm alienated from my parents and I'm unable to bridge that gap. It may not be that you can change your parents and maybe there's something about your parents, their own sinfulness, that you're not going to be able to change, but you can cut those puppet strings. 
you can change your sinful response to them. So if your parents continue doing the things that they've always done to push your buttons, they won't be able to anymore. You won't respond sinfully to their sinful choices against you because Christ will have healed you. I don't mean that cutting a puppet string is an instant thing. It's more like shaving away at that puppet string until you finally get it severed. But God does do that. He loves to do that. And as he fills our hearts with his overwhelming love, we no longer have that craving for our parents to be what they may never be able to be for us. So number one, identify the hardened areas in your heart. Where has someone hurt you, and is that something that's still affecting you? Maybe there's a painful relationship. You know, sometimes you have to withdraw a little bit from something that's really being painful to you. Someone's being particularly abrasive, you maybe need to pull away so that you don't develop resentment toward them. But do it out of love for them because you don't want to respond to them sinfully. You want to respond to them in love, not because you want to protect yourself and you're going to show them. If they're going to hurt you, you're going to hurt them back. That's not, that's not God's way. You do it because you want to image God. Remember that other sins cannot permanently damage you. Only your sinful choices in response to other sins can separate you from God. And last, maximize that two-edged sword. Let God go into the wounded places in your heart. Now, I know we are uh, running a little bit over time here. I'm going to just mention there's a family evaluation that you can look up online. Um, there wasn't any time that we could actually do this here, so I'm just going to give you where it is. You can look up this evaluation form. It's about 11 pages, I think. And it will help you to evaluate the relationship between you and your father and between you and your mother, and then evaluate how those have affected your relationship with God. It's a great tool I think you'll really enjoy and find very useful if you've struggled with some woundedness in those areas. How has your father imaged or not imaged God well to you and your mother? And then how has that warped your perception of what God is like? That he doesn't love you unless you do things well, um, that you're never good enough for him, whatever it is. Prayerfully consider how these things may have molded your conception of God. And the evaluation form is found at www.xapurdue.com, P-U-R-D-U-E, slash uploads, slash the underscore family underscore evaluation dot doc. That evaluation form, it's just something free you can download. You can also just Google the family evaluation. It'll probably come up there pretty uh, easily. You can look that up and print it out. Just fill it out prayerfully. I think you'll find probably some things that can really jumpstart your relationship with God and help you identify ways that things that are holding you up, hang-ups that keep you from being able to flow in your walk with God. You can't always stop that sword from cutting you, but you can allow Christ to heal your heart. And remember, the journey is the destination. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear, Mark 4.28. You know, the devil will tell you there's so much mess in your life, you can't even begin to get there. But God doesn't want you to believe that. He's, he's always got infinite room for growth. He knows that there's so much room for you to grow, but he's not going to give up on you. So just be content with where you are and let God continue leading. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your love for us. Teach us to love you in response, Lord. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org.
or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.